<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win this. Oh picture. god, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we either feature a new release and delve into our weekend entertainment, focus in on a performer's career, or buy an extra large popcorn and do a double feature. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give a special shout out to one of our Patreon subscribers, Tori Nash. Whether you're a brand new listener to Talk Movie to Me, or you've listened to all 150 some odd episodes we've recorded since the beginning... We value your support, and one truly meaningful way you can show that support is by becoming a Patreon subscriber. For $4 a month, you'll gain access to a unique patron-only episode, and also you'll be able to go back through previous seasons and listen to Helen, Miss Sinclair, and myself talk about your favorite movies of the past five years. Yeah. Head over to patreon.com slash talkmovietome to show us you love us and become a subscriber, just like Tori did. Thank you. Thanks, Tori. Now, on to this week's episode. In the full breadth of American popular culture, there have been many stars. Plenty of entertainers were considered iconic in their time, and some grew, over time, to become truly legendary. Their work and image emblazoned on the collective consciousness forever. But of all the stars of the silver screen, there is one who shone brightest of all. No other pop culture icon of the 20th century can claim the level of fascination and obsession adoration and examination that Marilyn Monroe has. Even now, 60 years after her tragic death at the far too young age of 36, I would wager that she remains the most recognizable figure in Hollywood's illustrious history. More than 200 books have been written about her. At least 16 films have been made about her. She's been played by Ashley Judd, Mira Sorvino. Michelle Williams was nominated for an Oscar for her interpretation in My Week with Marilyn. Madonna iconized her in her Material Girl music video, which Blake Lively also reenacted in the 100th episode of Gossip Girl. Dior brought Marilyn back to life in CGI for a J'adore commercial, despite Marilyn being most famously connected to Chanel No. 5. She's been on The Simpsons, inspired endless fashion campaigns, and the list goes on and on. Truly, it would be a near-impossible task to try and catalog her many references in pop culture. And this week's film, entitled Blonde, is the latest. It's directed by Andrew Dominic, who also wrote the screenplay based on the 2000 novel of the same name by Joyce Carol Oates, and portraying Marilyn this time is Anna Diarmas. Blonde follows the classic biopic formula of tracking its star's life from childhood to death. So we see young Norma Jean growing up in a violent home with an abusive mother, then we see the formation of Marilyn Monroe and her rise to stardom, followed by that bright star combusting and finally burning out. Despite creating and embodying one of the most fundamental and iconic personas in the history of American popular culture, and despite navigating an extraordinarily cutthroat business and securing equal pay for herself, despite starting her own production company, and despite literally defining an archetypal character that nobody has since been able to replicate, this film, Blonde, asks the question, how much trauma and pain can we squeeze into this two-hour and 47-minute long film? (laughs) 
A lot. (laughs) First impression, (laughs) Helen. That was a really good intro. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was nervous to start this. Uh, I'd been trying not to read too much about it, but it was a little bit hard to avoid um, by just being on the internet. Also, we had seen a trailer recently of Anna de Armas speaking in this role, and I immediately was like, oh, she still has an accent. Okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of a red flag for me where I was like, oh, I okay, I wasn't expecting that. Interesting. Let's see what happens here. And then I'm like, oh, this is a two hour, 47 minute movie. Like, go fuck yourself. (laughs) That's a no for Helen right off the bat. Oh, my God. Like, I I just that really set it off on the wrong foot for me. But I had actually seen an Instagram story from somebody with just this poster with a little blurb of what they thought that I didn't, you know, mean to see, but it came across my feed and it had to do with it being filled with anti-abortion rhetoric. And I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to hate this. Oh, no. So that's how I felt. Like, I couldn't, like, I right off yeah. the bat, I was like, I mean, I know I'm not going to like this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. How about you, Sinclair? <sighs> yeah, I, I've had my guard up with this film since the beginning since there was early talk about this early trailers casting of Anna Darmus there's always been something that's rubbed me the wrong way about this movie I honestly think I would have skipped it if we weren't doing this for the podcast it's just not something I was even remotely interested in watching and I mean a lot of that is because right now I do have this kind of eye roll attitude about do we need another movie about Marilyn Monroe? Do we need another movie about a tragic woman? And mm-hmm. for me, Spencer was pushing it. Yeah. I was already like, I cannot, I just cannot with another portrayal of Diana. I can't. And luckily that one didn't annoy me <laughs> that much. <laughs> but at the same time, it was pushing it. And, you know, just to start off, my expectations were already pretty low for this and, as soon as this movie began, I, it felt very cringy from the beginning. So I, I wasn't feeling this at all. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> to be fair. completely honest. Well, for Eddie? me, I think uh, truthfully, I somehow had missed a lot of that. Maybe I've been preoccupied with other stuff in life over the past couple of weeks. My last real like connection to this film was hearing about the wild standing ovation that she had in at the Venice Film Festival um, right. for the film and like seeing her on the red carpet and whatever. And could one of you mess- messaged about it, about like the internet eviscerating it. And I was like, wait, mm-hmm. what? I thought it had the standing ovation. So I was, I didn't have the same expectations going in that y'all did. So my first impression was positive. Uh, I thought right off the bat that the score was really haunting I liked the intro with these flashing lights and the cameras and these giant spotlights and then this star at the center. I also liked the font, how they wrote blonde. I thought it was interesting. It began like swirling and fancy and elaborate and then gets less so as the letters progress until we get to the E, which is like totally disintegrated. Mm. And I just thought, okay, that's kind of cool. So I was kind of into it at at the beginning as a first impression. That first shot of you know the seven year itch that classic shot of her but it's like a low angle kind of like going up her dress and it's like a shot of her ass so i think it is very much setting the tone of what this is going (laughs) to be exploring and how it's going to be explored 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, then let's get into the exploration and talk about the storytelling of this film. Yes. Okay, so this is based off of the novel by jo- Joyce Carol Oates in which she says right off the top that it is a fictionalized story inside the mind of this real person. And I didn't know that. And this film, I mean, if you go on the IMDb for this movie, it actually does say like a fictionalized tale, blah, blah, blah. But I don't actually feel like this was ever not trying to be a biopic. Mm-hmm. Mm. It certainly wasn't advertised as such. No, it was not at all advertised as being like a An retelling allegory. or yeah, or like revisionist history. Like, you know, like it was definitely being marketed as a biopic. And so I got deeper and deeper into the story as I kept watching this. But I didn't realize how much of this was going to be false. Mm-hmm. And imagined because mm-hmm. it is a, a lot of it is. <laughs> Well, I think that a lot of it, too, is taking real things that did happen to her, but it's the angle in which it's being explored and what parts are being focused on. Right. And And I I think that the book was never meant to victimize Marilyn Monroe. I think Mm. it was, you know, supposed to be this study of fame and also three types of a woman. So you know, this shy unknown, this Hollywood persona, and then this all idea of being a blonde in America. So I mm. think it was supposed to be more of a study on these different types of women through the lens of a Hollywood starlet. Mm-hmm. But from what I've read about the book, it wasn't in any way supposed to victimize Marilyn Monroe. It was actually supposed to be a real study and exploration of these things, these ideas. And that is absolutely not this film. The Marilyn that they're portraying in this film is purely a victim. She is Mm -hmm. just so helpless and stuck in her own head, swirling anxiety, just incredibly traumatized and powerless. It's Marilyn Monroe as a victim, relentlessly tortured, soul constantly seeking approval which maybe makes sense with the psychology of her trauma or whatever but she's also you know a full human mm-hmm. and has to have more dimension than that this is a one-dimensional character and i know that there was tragedy in her life in marilyn monroe's life and probably most of the people in her life did fail her to some degree just like mm-hmm. judy garland and whitney houston and billy holiday and mm-hmm. so many other genius female performers whose light burned like so very bright and who carried with them all this pain and trauma but they all of them were also huge superstars with real power and right. impact and agency and marilyn monroe as portrayed in this film is a woman so singularly drawn as a victim as somebody who's unable to muster any type of like individual agency or self-empowerment that she doesn't come across as a real person at all. This Mm -hmm. Marilyn is like looking at this giant elaborate painting, but only being able to see 10% of it. You're right. If If this is trying to be a biopic, it is utterly failing. And that's how it has pitched itself. Well, and I think... Yes, her, she had a tragic life, but why portray it as even worse? Like, I feel that's what this movie did. It didn't try mm. to put it in, put any sort of positive spin. It was like, let's actually make her life worse than it was. And let's have you view her in like the most degrading way you could ever imagine this woman to be viewed. And why? Why on earth mm-hmm. does that need well, to be made? And why do we need to see it? 
What were so, some of the things that weren't accurate, Helen? So in terms of what is real and what is fictionalized, I mean, what's not fictionalized in this movie? Like so much of it is completely fiction or has been very twisted. So one of the first things that we see is her having this threesome relationship with Cass Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin's son, and Eddie Robinson Jr. And that never happened. Really? (laughs) No. She is rumored to have maybe had a, a short relationship with both of them at some point but there was never this like threesome thing like happening a that polyamorous became a moment spectacle absolutely not that never happened and probably safe to say she didn't get pregnant by one of them also it is known that she had many miscarriages because she had endometriitis but it was never documented that she ever had an abortion it's possible that she did but and we will get into this topic separately but There's multiple abortions in this movie that it was never documented that those ever happened. There's a scene where she's auditioning for All About Eve and gets seemingly raped by the head of 20th Century Fox. I mean, again, could it have happened? Maybe. You know, I I think she was vocal about assault and misogyny within the film industry, but that particular instance never documented the everything with jfk again was speculated that she probably had some some kind of an affair with him also with bobby kennedy did he force her to perform oral sex on him and then rape her and then get her pregnant and then have the secret service come in and bring her to another abortion no like Mm -hmm. there (laughs) so much of this film so my question is to play out this gossip or these mm-hmm. myths why yeah yes. what you is know, it like what, what is, is that it exploring and adding yeah, yeah. to actually um, play out these sensationalized stories whether they're yeah. true or not like why mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah this is supposed to be this you know fictionalized you know dreamlike abstract account of this woman and you know maybe Andrew Dominic wanted this to be a really like beat you over the head film about celebrity obsession and the dark side of Hollywood but I feel like we know that already and that's actually how most people view Marilyn Monroe as a tragic heroine so I'm not quite sure what that angle really accomplishes in the end and I think that this idea of it being fictionalized tends to lean towards being a bit of a cop-out in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. because you can just say, well, it's just fictionalized. And and Andrew Dominic has said, well, much of her as a person is fictionalized. Marilyn Monroe is really fictionalized. And biographies, actual biographies that have been written about her. How true are those? And we all have this idea of who she was and it's really all fictional. So he's saying, well, people want to see Marilyn Monroe how they want to see her. So it's all kind of fictionalized. But at the same time, you watch this and you go, okay, Andrew Dominic, is that how you want to see her then? exactly. Because that makes it worse. Yeah. So you want to see her being raped? Cool. And a lot of this movie, I was watching it going, do you like this subject? Like, do you like Marilyn Monroe? Because watching this makes me feel like he didn't like her. 
Well, yeah, Sinclair. I mean, I think that's a really astute point. Like, does Andrew Dominic even like mm-hmm. Marilyn Monroe? And in this mm-hmm. interview he gave with BFI, that's the British Film Institute, um, their Sight and Sound magazine, he, I mean, essentially revealed what anyone who watches this movie can, like, blatantly see, that he has no respect for mm-hmm. the artistry of Marilyn Monroe and no interest in exploring the complexities of, like, her as a person. Christina Newland, the film critic who conducted the interview with him, shared this little bit of conversation between them on Twitter. Dominic says, She's somebody who's become this huge cultural thing in a whole load of movies that nobody really watches, right? Does anyone watch Marilyn Monroe movies? Oh, (laughs) stop it. Stop. Yeah, she says, I mean, I do. A lot of my colleagues and friends do. Um, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is one we watch a lot. He says, really? What is it about it? And she <laughs> Sorry, the him. sentence is, what is it about it? <laughs> yeah, like, what okay. is it about the film that makes right. people yeah, like yeah, it? Yeah. This is the director of the Marilyn yes. Monroe biopic. Okay. Yes. <laughs> she says, it has a worldview that's quite cynical about men and gender relations in a way that I think a lot of contemporary young women like. And it affords mm. Marilyn's character the credit of her wit. She gets one-upmanship on men. She's not a dumb blonde. Not really. Dominic says, it's cynical about women too, though. She goes, yes, maybe, but it's glamorous. It's fantasy. He says, what, because they're well-dressed? Sure, she says. Then he says, they're well-dressed whores. I don't know. And then at another point in the same interview, he says, I'm not interested in reality. I'm interested in the images. And so, honestly, that says all that it has to about how he viewed the subject of his film. And it's why we see such a shallow portrayal of her on the screen. Because when you take an actual human especially one with as complex a life and story as Marilyn Monroe, mm-hmm. and truly are only interested in the images, mm-hmm. then your story can't help but lose all depth. Well, and also you're part of the problem that she experienced. And, you know, watching this movie, I thought to myself, has he watched any of her movies? <laughs> like, has he... I, 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 that's what I was thinking, because the way mm. he was actually showing the movies and I, I was like, has he watched anything? It does make sense that he was only very interested in one aspect of her, the mm. abused victim, Marilyn Monroe, which kind of goes to this dark idea that a lot of people had of her where she was this like damsel in distress in need of rescuing, which mm. a lot of men fantasized about so it's almost like he is contributing in a way to that version of her that is definitely a dark side of her her persona i agree Um, a thousand percent mm -hmm. and i think actually his film like the movie makes a critique of the way that hollywood considered her just this piece of meat or this thing that needed to be rescued and yet his movie kind of literally does the same thing of yeah. anadarmus but hollywood like, it, yeah. yes there's a downside to hollywood and and hollywood chews people up and it spits them out but we have to remember that she was an important actress in hollywood who mm-hmm. worked with some of the biggest directors like she wasn't just a piece of meat in hollywood mm. she was a huge movie star and Mm -hmm. this movie my biggest problem with this is that it doesn't give her any credit no as a person or as an artist like this isn't somebody that you know was this doe-eyed deer that was just tossed around willy-nilly in in hollywood 
she was a talented actress and she wanted to be viewed as a serious actress Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she has some really good performances and the reason why i say like did this guy watch any of her movies is because it doesn't this movie doesn't get her it doesn't Mm -hmm. get what she did in film at all or or the power that she had in creating and forming her persona and and controlling it Mm -hmm. i think that with marilyn monroe she was a survivalist in a lot of ways Mm. and she was smart and this idea of a dumb blonde isn't really a dumb blonde when you watch her movie movies you realize that it was a shtick Mm -hmm. it was a shtick and she had control over men and she used it as a way to manipulate men and Mm. You know, even gentlemen prefer blondes. It's this whole shtick of, you know, we're just two little girls from Little Rock. Oh, we're just two little girls. We're not going to steal your money. We're not going to (laughs) take your diamonds. Like it is a, it's a cleverness. And it's a way to survive. And my take on that is that Andrew Dominic didn't show a lot of her movie footage because that would give her some sort of power (laughs) in this movie and this movie didn't want her to have any power because Mm -hmm. when you see her act and you see her filmography you're like oh that person knows what they're doing yes regardless if they're having issues as a woman in the industry it's like that person's self-aware and they know they're insightful yeah i mean her emotional note in this movie is mainly just distressed She's in crisis mm. throughout this entire film. And that's yeah. not a movie. No. Yeah. Showing somebody continually in crisis, like absolutely devastated and like being beaten down. Like I, in any context, that's not a movie you want to watch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they focus briefly on a movie called Don't Bother to Knock, which is mm. a yes. movie she did in 1952. And it's kind of before all the sticky stuff comes in, like the real like over the top breathy stuff and she is dramatic in that movie Mm. and basically she uses a lot of her past Mm. experiences with psychiatric hospitals and abuse she uses that in her character so she's talked about like using her real experiences to get to that place and that's not what a victim does that's what an artist does Mm. right and the only comment on her in that movie is the director's going, yeah, but look at that ass. I right. know. And it's like, no, I, I was so disappointed in that. I- it's like, no, she's really great in that movie. She's a real actress, you know? Yeah, and like if you're going to... the most negative aspect. If you're going to show all this trauma and then not see her triumph out of the trauma, then why show the trauma? Yeah. And, and if you're trying to give that scene and that comment as a way to sort of make a scathing commentary on how objectifying the men of Hollywood are, then don't make your actual film super objectified. Right. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Where literally you have your lead actress topless and diminished and degraded mm-hmm. for uh, so much of this film. Yeah. It is astonishing. I do think that there was a really interesting sort of element that they tried to talk about or tried to explore a little bit of this duality of 
Norma Jean and the mask of celebrity right. Marilyn Monroe mm-hmm. being this literal character that she has to conjure. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was kind of neat because I do think that stars do that a lot. And I, I'm sorry to always just bring everything to Whitney, but this is just the one thing. <laughs> but like in the documentary, Whitney, she there's this one kind of scene of her in 1999 backstage and she is having that exact mm. moment. She's mm-hmm. literally in the dressing room in front of the mirror getting ready to go out on stage. And she's like, all right, Whitney, we got to bring out Whitney Houston. Let's go. Mm. And like trying to channel this other persona yeah. for the stage. And I think that that is real. And that is is an interesting thing that deserves maybe that's a, a cool story to tell. But that just wasn't really, you know, yeah, that wasn't what this was. It, yeah. Well, yeah. I feel like it it's explores the idea of Norma Jean a lot. But at the same time when she becomes Marilyn Monroe, there is a power to that and there Mm. is a survivalist technique to that. And we don't get to see the charm and the power of Marilyn. We just see this Norma Jean side. And I think the saddest thing about her was she very much felt like, who am I if I'm not Marilyn Monroe? But we never get to see Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yes. And what you also don't get to see in this is the joy or the or the sense of empowerment that Norma Jean feels by mm. being Marilyn Monroe. Right. Because it, it's men almost like she hates her. Marilyn Monroe. Because men worshipped her. And this movie spends so much time going men hated her and degraded her and abused <laughs> her. But at the same time, there was a whole slew right. of men who worshipped the ground that she walked on. Yeah. And there's a great moment in the film Misfits that was mm. written by Arthur Miller. And it's at the later stage of her life it It was was her last film she died it was her Mm. last film and she's not the sticky gentleman prefer blondes she's a a tired woman and Mm. clark gable says to her you're a real beautiful woman it's almost kind of an honor sitting next to you you shine in my eyes Mm. and he says what makes you so sad i think you're the saddest girl i've ever met And she says, you're the first man that's ever said that. I'm usually told how happy I am. Mm. And then Clark Gable says, that's because you make a man feel happy. Wow. And in no moment of this movie do you see that charm and that happiness and the effect that she had on men and she had on the world. God, if that's not a literal conversation that Arthur Miller would have had with her. Yeah. And that's the thing in the movie where they talk about you know, yeah. do you write what we talk about? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, even looking at all of the men that she interacts with in this film, they all take advantage of her. Mm-hmm. Every yeah. single one of them. Even Cass and, and Eddie from the beginning try to blackmail Joe DiMaggio. Like, yeah. there isn't a single person that she has a relationship in this movie that isn't isn't taking advantage of her. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think maybe she did feel that way in her life that, you know, everyone left her or she felt a very abandoned. But yeah, it, that, that's such a great point, Sinclair, that there was no evidence of men actually just like liking being around her. No, yeah. totally. So the biggest issue I had with this movie is the way that it portrays abortion. Never have I ever seen so many unborn fetuses in a film, I don't think. Yeah, and cervix like, eye shots. Yeah. Like, a cervix eye view. 
this this was Jesus. a pro-life propaganda film like dressed up as a perfume ad like yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know when she gets pregnant the first time supposedly uh she goes to visit her mother in the institution that she's in her mother clearly has a severe mental illness speaks to the doctor and asks if it's genetic and the doctor basically says yes which then propels her to say I shouldn't be having this baby this is what we're meant to infer I shouldn't be having this baby I don't want to pass down this genetic disease to this baby but then also she's convinced to or she's persuaded to not have the baby because she's supposed to do general and prefer blondes Right. Goes to get the abortion and the abortion scene, even the scene where she like discovers she's pregnant, we're getting this like imagery of a sperm going towards an egg. Like, I don't yeah, know why yeah. we're seeing it like this. The, it looked like the beginning of Look Who's Talking. Yeah. Like why we needed <laughs> there was to a lot of Luke, Look Who's Talking inspiration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then she's in to get the abortion, decides she doesn't want to, and is trying to get out. It's played like such a horror movie. And yeah, we get multiple shots of like the forceps or whatever they're called going into her mm-hmm. and opening her up. Like it's just so gratuitous. And the thing, honestly, that infuriated me so much with these fetus scenes, the stage of pregnancy that she's at, These are not fetuses with heads and arms and fingers like they are fucking peanuts. And it's something like this is such a huge argument from the anti-abortion camps is like you're you're killing this baby and these, you know, images of these like dismembered fetuses on bloody fetuses, whatever. The majority of abortions that happen, they are not they are like the size of a fucking bean. Mm-hmm. And for the director to show this fully formed fetus when she's like, and what? Have maybe, it talk to her and mm-hmm. have it talk to her when she's yeah. what's maybe six weeks pregnant is. Yeah, is disgusting. And like so <laughs> clearly dangerous. trying uh, dangerous, but clearly trying to uh, influence how people feel about it. Talk to her and beg her to not take its life. Well, so here yeah. I actually I wrote out this dialogue from the second time. That it's not even, this is not an abortion moment, but she's pregnant for however, I don't know what time this would have been that she's meant to be pregnant, but she's having a conversation with the fetus in her belly, which again is like the size of a baby about to come out of the womb. And she's only like maybe five weeks pregnant, who knows? And the baby says, you won't hurt me uh, this time, will you not do what you did last time? It's like a little kid voice. And she says, I didn't. I didn't mean to. Yes, you meant to. It was your decision. Uh, you're not the same baby. You're this baby. That was me. It's always me. Why on earth is that in this film? If mm. Unless he's a staunch pro-life guy. And maybe he is. Because I, I don't, I cannot fathom why that is in this movie. I'm so angry about it. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Just displays his complete and utter lack of understanding of the current women's rights crisis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, and even when she sees Jenna Flynn for prefer blondes in the theater and she whispers to herself, I killed my baby for this. And it's like, no, that's not women don't talk to themselves yeah. like that. And it's 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 portraying mm-hmm. this image of women's rights and abortion and reproductive rights as this helpless again victimization and that she's being forced into having these abortions when what we're dealing with in this day and age like this is the last thing that 
we needed to see. A hundred percent. I also have to say that I found very particularly the like intravaginal abortion Ugh. moment to be a real wild violation. Yep. It felt so invasive and exploitative of Marilyn Monroe, the person, the dead human. It was like vile and mm. disgusting and unnecessary and really infuriating. Like it was, uh, it was so gross. Yeah, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. And even the JFK blowjob scene. Yeah. I was Ugh. watching that and I was like, do, do people just, you know, this, did this director just want to see... Anna de Armas as Marilyn Monroe just mimicking a blowjob. It yeah. went on and on and on. And I was like, is this just so we can watch her simulate this? Like, why yeah, are like, we watching is he, this? Is he like feverishly masturbating to that <laughs> s- sequence in his own film? Again, he is exploiting Anna de Armas. And she's topless a lot too. Like, it's, mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel like. It's for the necessary. sake of art or necessary. No. When Bobby Cannavale like walks into the room and she says, where were you at, right. daddy? And then he slaps her in the face. Why is she topless in that topless. moment? It's yeah. totally unnecessary. Like yeah. the whole thing. Um, okay. Why don't we get into performances since we're on the anadarmus of it all. She is mm. Marilyn. And mm. I will say I thought that she, despite the characterization being so limited in this film, right? I thought that she was unbelievable at the physicality, the voice, the personification, the embodiment of Marilyn in particularly in some of the like set pieces that were of the film. Like when she was doing the, I want to be loved by you, just you Mm -hmm. little clip. I was, I was like, fuck me. That is Marilyn Monroe. Like it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of those scenes are actually her because at first they weren't given permission by MGM to use any footage from the film, but then they were given permission. So I think that a lot of that is actually the footage with maybe her face put on. And the singing voice is not her. It's uh, an actress named Vanessa Limanitas, I believe is how you say her name. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. I thought it was her. Yeah. So I thought her emotionality in this film was impressive and raw and like very much there. I was really distracted by her accent coming in and out, to be honest. I thought that. Oh, yeah. I thought her Cuban accent was like really evident. (laughs) It was evident, but that didn't bother me Hmm. at all, actually, because the emotion was so there and the embodiment was so there. I was like. It's fine. It's mm. actually really difficult for Latina actors to mm-hmm. lose the accent completely. It re- mm. It's almost impossible. It's not the same as English or Australian actors. Right. And so if they're going to be able to get lead roles in films like this, then we just have to accept that that mm. might be present. And it didn't bother me that way, I guess. Yeah, it just every time I heard something, it would take me out. And yeah. I'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, I hear it there. I hear it there. Yeah. You know, the accent didn't bother me too much because there were so many other things that were irritating (laughs) me more. Totally. The accent actually was the least of my problems (laughs) with this movie. You know, it's interesting because I think that there are a ton of actresses who could have done what Anna Darmas did in this movie. And Mm. I don't think that that's a fault 
of Anna de Armas. I don't think she was given the opportunity to play any other sides of Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. I think most actors can play pain. It's yeah. kind of a given. I don't think that yeah. they can really portray how good of a comedian she was right. or her charm or what made her an icon. That, mm. I think, is the challenge. And it's unfortunate we didn't get to see Anna de Armas show us if she right. could do that or not. Because it just uh, wasn't The movie there. didn't allow her to, to yeah. do There were that, a couple really, so of moments, though. They were tiny glimpses. It was not the focal point of the film, obviously. But there were tiny little moments where I do feel like that charm came through and that charisma and Marilyn came through for sure. Have I you guys so. been on the Hollywood Strip? Yes. <laughs> so I, I went to the Hollywood mm-hmm. Strip and it was the saddest <laughs> place it I is. have ever been. Truly. And there's a lot of people dressed up as Marilyn Monroe. And this movie to me was a Marilyn Monroe that's on the Hollywood strip. Like, that's what it felt like to me. That was the kind of portrayal that it was. And, you know, I was a little worried about Anna de Armas. And I haven't decided if I actually like Anna de Armas or not. Yeah. There are things that I think fit with Marilyn Monroe. There is a desperation to Anna Darmus <laughs> that I've said to you guys too. I think all you of- just hate her <laughs> celebrity. You hate the way that her relationship was with Ben Affleck. I, the Ben Affleck and you stuff, hate Knives I, Out. I kind of went off of her after the Ben Affleck yeah. stuff because there was a desperation there to be famous and to be a star. And I was like, okay, that kind of fits with Hollywood mm. actresses of the time coming from nothing, wanting to be famous. So that kind of fits. But the thing about Anna de Armas that I was worried about was there is a tendency to victimize Anna de Armas in movies. This is a thing. It what it's what, and she also plays a fantasy character really well. Not in the latest Bond film. So she I have stole that movie. Right. So I hear that's really good, and I actually haven't seen that, so I won't speak on that. But basically, okay. Blade Runner twenty forty nine. She's Joy, the AI who can kind of do anything for a man. She works really well in that. And, you know, even in Knives Out, it's like, how much can people shit on Anna de Armas? So I was a little yeah, worried that this, a... this movie was going to be just shitting on Anna de Armas. <laughs> you know? So I haven't really seen her in anything where I can really get behind Anna de Armas yet. I'm like waiting for that role. And I definitely think she can do it. I think she has the mm. act- acting chops. But to me, she's all, all pain. That's all Anna de Armas mm. is, is pain and suffering. <laughs> I feel really bad for her too. I thought that I and I said to you guys like probably a week ago or two weeks ago, I sent you a text. I was like, "This movie's gonna make her a star," didn't mm. I? You did. And you were like, "Yeah." And what did I and tell you? <laughs> here's the thing. I I don't know. I'm just gonna have to disagree with you. I think that she is a a superstar, and I, I think I'm that she stole almost every film she's been on. In. This I actually won't disagree because I actually am hoping that she comes out with some some other parts. So I won't disagree with you on that. I actually hope that for her, to be honest. Mm. Okay. <laughs> How about some technical talk? Yeah, I mean, there there's some interesting technical stuff happening in this movie. We go between color and black and white throughout the film, and maybe I'm dumb, but, like, I read this in a review afterwards that <laughs> color is when it's Norma Jean, black and white is when it's Marilyn. Did you guys pick up on that? I can actually tell you. 
So in that same Helen interview, Helen is dumb or with, not dumb? <laughs> no, Helen is not dumb. But in that okay. same interview with Andrew Dominic, there's actually literally no, there's no purpose to the mm. switching mm-hmm. between black and white. Oh, that's what it felt like to me. I don't for think the you're sake dumb of at all. storytelling. <laughs> it literally is again his obsession with the images of the film. If he was referencing a photo or a clip of Marilyn oh. that was in black and white. That would be this. The sequence would be shot in black and white. Oh, great! Then whoever wrote that review is dumb because it's actually not that. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I literally... didn't view it that way, and then I was like, "Oh, I guess I just didn't pick up on that." But he yeah. said it himself. He's like, "No, it has nothing to do with storytelling. It's just if I reference photo was in black and white, we shot the scene in black and white." But it it's honestly just feels like it has nothing to do with storytelling. No, because it, it just like, feels like it doesn't have anything to do with anything. Like to me, anything this looked all. like a student. Film. like a well shot student <laughs> film like if yeah. you gave a student a couple million dollars and they just wanted to experiment with different things like there didn't feel like there was a purpose behind anything I actually I can get that I'm not going to disagree with you on that there were a lot of really sort of bizarre shots mm-hmm. that seemed really out of left field like when she visits her mom at the mental hospital after you know that first time and Marilyn looks in the room and the frame yeah. becomes this circle and like through yeah. keyholes super zooms in it's a really <laughs> dramatic shot and then at the end when the phone is ringing and she I looks know. at the phone and it's like this yeah. crazy yeah. zoom and then the threesome scene with all the crazy distorted imagery. Yeah. A lot of it was like, it felt experimental, but like kind of, but yeah, let's unintentional. try this out. Like, yes, exactly. Yeah. He does say, I read this in IMDb trivia, where he says the script contains little dialogue and the film is an avalanche of images and events. I'm like, yeah, kind of. Although you, of that little dialogue, you gave some of it to an unborn fetus. So that was your choice. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. What's the last word on Blonde? Fuck this movie. I hate this movie. (laughs) I hate it. I just, I'm angry that it was made. But the bright side is a lot of other people hate it too. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's not going unnoticed that how problematic this film is for me the last word is i did not enjoy this film i thought it <laughs> was absolutely not a biopic i thought it was really gross and unnecessary i thought it reduced marilyn monroe to just a victim and I want it so much more. I did, however, love Anna de Armas and what she went into it. And I thought she has immeasurable charisma on screen. Um, and I thought that she gave it all that she could, considering the limitations of the script. Yeah. Sinclair? Look, I honestly feel like instead of watching Blonde, go watch Marilyn Monroe's filmography mm. and really look at her as an actress and as an artist. And see her as something other than a tragic heroine and, a, you know, a true Hollywood story. We know the tragedy already. Mm-hmm. And what she always wanted was to be seen as a serious actress. Yeah. So watch her filmography and appreciate her for that. And mm. take her seriously as an actress and really enjoy the amazing things that she did in film and contributed to film. And mm. just give her that. Give her that time. Yeah, and you could literally watch two of her films instead of this one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
this episode, we challenge ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme. And that theme is American Idol. This is our week in entertainment. Helen, what'd you pick? Okay, I kind of cheated a little bit. Or not cheated, but I feel like I picked something I probably shouldn't have picked. But I have my reasons. Okay, you can defend your case. I watched my week with Marilyn. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I just felt like I'm actually really excited to hear about this now. Yeah, I felt I thought I was like, this is so on the nose. And I actually think Edison might have done this for an owie way back. But if we can't remember, I'm sure the listeners can't remember. So, yeah. So this came out in 2011. This is directed by Simon Curtis, starring Michelle Williams, Eddie Redmayne and Kenneth Branagh. Eddie this Ren- came out in 2011? Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I know. Okay. Yeah. Eddie Redmayne plays Colin Clark, a 23-year-old from a wealthy family full of overachievers, and he is the black sheep. He's enamored by film and decides that the film industry will be where he shines. He gets a job as a third assistant director on Laurence Olivier's upcoming film, The Sleeping Prince, starring Olivier and Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn is breathtaking, talented, and captivating, but also erratic, unpredictable, and tardy. Young, impressionable Colin sees none of the bad and all of the good and quickly becomes her confidant and maybe even something more. Mm. I had never seen this movie. Oh, I, really? No. I was really struggling to find something for this segment. I debated doing Elvis, but I that's over two and a half hours and I could not watch two, two and a half hour plus films in one week. So no. (laughs) And after watching Blonde, I felt like I needed a palate cleanser of Marilyn Monroe content that wasn't going to be so horrible. (laughs) Mm. And I got that with this. So this is based off of two books written by Colin Clark. The Prince, The Showgirl, and Me, and My Week with Marilyn. This movie takes a chunk of her life and shows her through the eyes of this young man who is enamored with her. And it it does a really great job of showing, you know, we do see the trauma and the tragedy that's inside of her. But more than that, we see the sparkle. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. how effervescent she is. And Michelle Williams does, I think, such a great job. Mm-hmm. Like, there's actual joy in this movie. Mm-hmm. And there's no and joy in Blonde. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and she's joyful. And you can tell that there's something about being Marilyn that does bring her joy and is an escape. Yeah. And this movie, I wanted to, like, hug <laughs> <laughs> it's like thank you for existing and you do also see the power she has over men and that she's aware that she can do that and you see her determination as an actress and a big part of her being in this movie was her having Paula Strasberg, her acting coach at her side the entire time and her being late to set because she wasn't emotionally prepared enough yet to do the Mm. the work and her putting so much pressure on herself and Mm. it's you know opposite Laurence Olivier yeah yeah yeah. actor yes and he's directing it too and so he's getting frustrated that she's late all the time and that she can't just like say the line and get it over with and so you really see her determination and commitment to being 
an actress in this film as well. Um, mm. It's it's just a really, really sweet movie and a lovely take on her. And at the end of it, when we get the text at the end, you know, it says after this movie, which ended up being called, uh, I believe, The Prince and the Showgirl, not The Sleeping Prince. Mm. She goes on to make Some Like It Hot, which is one of her biggest films. And he goes mm. on to make one of his biggest films. And nowhere in there does it say, and then she died, right? Like, it's just not, it's not about that. Yeah, It's, it's about, about her work. Yeah, yeah. It's about her work. It's about how she, you know, the impression she left on Colin and just about her presence. So if you need a palate cleanser after watching Blonde, head on over to Amazon Prime and you can watch My Week with Marilyn. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Edison, would you like to go next? Sure. So my film in this episode features one of the most legendary of all American idols. <laughs> this isn't the first film about this character, but it is easily the most iconic. Representing truth, justice, and the American way. Can you guess the film? I honestly thought you were going to do Purple Rain. I was going to do Purple Rain. Ah, I knew it! I just was like, Edison, because I was like, oh man, I, I haven't seen Purple Rain. And I was like, fuck, I think mm. Edison's going to do Purple Rain. I was going I to. I was going to do it. <laughs> yeah, but then you but did I didn't. it, and then I also did it. Is it Buddy Ho- the Buddy Holly story? No. The key know. was in the tagline, truth, justice, and the American way. Okay. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> That's fine. The film that I chose was 1978's Superman, directed by Richard Donner and starring Christopher Reeve as Superman, Margot Kidder as Lois Lane, and Gene Hackman as Superman's arch nemesis, Lex Luthor. So this movie gives us the origin story of Superman, Mm. which probably most people know because it's Superman. But anyway, the film starts when he's an infant named Kal-El on the planet of Krypton. His father, Jor-El, played by Brando, is a member of the Kryptonian High Council, and he's discovered that their sun is going to explode and that their planet is doomed. And he makes a plea to the rest of the High Council to take action and save the planet and the population before it's too late, but they don't believe him. So realizing it's too late for them, Jor-El sends his son on this little protected spaceship to Earth, a planet in the distant galaxy where, due to the unique radiation emanating from its sun, Kal-El will grow to develop superpowers, giving him superhuman strength, near invincibility, and a multitude of other powers. And on Earth, it la- his ship lands in this field in rural Kansas, outside mm-hmm. the aptly named town of Smallville. And right. here he's discovered by Jonathan and Martha Kent, who name him Clark and raise him as their own son. Eventually, he grows to become a teenager, begins to discover superpowers, follows the call of Green Crystal to the Arctic Fortress of Solitude, is guided in the ways of Krypton by a hologram of his deceased father, and then eventually makes his <laughs> As way do to... we all. <laughs> <laughs> to the city of Metropolis, where he takes up a day job as a reporter alongside Lois Lane at the Daily Planet, while moonlighting as the superhero that we all know, Superman. I had seen this film as a kid probably two or three times but i haven't seen it since Mm -hmm. and the truth is i was going to do purple rain i knew it but i watched randomly last weekend with my brother man of steel the Mm -hmm. superman movie Mm -hmm. with henry cavill and um amy adams and henry cavill jesus fucking 
don't start. <laughs> oh, I just can't. But then I was like, ooh, I actually want to go back and rewatch the original Superman film. Because superhe- Superman literally is the archetypal superhero. Mm, right. Like, other superheroes may have existed in literature prior to him, but, but really it was Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and, and Joe Schuster in the comic book Action Comics 1, published in 1938, wow. that made the superhero a thing created this archetype of someone with a secret identity who puts on a costume and uses their superpowers to fight evil Hmm. and of course the great irony is that all canadians of like a certain age know that joe schuster was canadian because of the canadian heritage minutes you know oh i never saw that one (gasps) no one's going to read a comic strip about a strong man in tights joe it'll never fly oh yeah okay okay okay. leap over tall buildings dun 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 I, I do remember now. I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The movie is great. It's kind of slow. It's like two and a half hours long as well. Good for you. But <laughs> yeah, but it's actually really good and kind of sweet and and interesting. And all of the actors are wonderful. Like Christopher Reeve is so good and he emanates goodness and decency. Mm. He's a perfect Superman. He just looks like a swimmer. And his costume is just spandex. Like, it's not like Henry Cavill, who mm. looks like this, like an action figure. Right. You know? And Margot Kidder as Lois Lane is so unique. Mm-hmm. She's got such a unique energy on screen. Like, she's smart. She's not conventionally beautiful. She is beautiful, but it's not, she's not there for that. She's, she's one of my this... favorite 80s actors. Really? Yeah, like 70s, 80s Margot Kidder. Yeah, she's really wonderful in this. And, like, the film mostly makes sense. It it all falls apart in the end in the way, like, like none of it makes sense, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> the movie is really good. And really, like, Superman is an American idol. Mm-hmm. He represents all of the sort of aspirational qualities that America likes to see of itself. And... He is this, like, country boy from Kansas. And I think that there's just something really cool about it. Even though Superman isn't cool because he's got, like, literally zero edge, there is still something <laughs> that I appreciate about it. And mm. and it was fun to kind of go back and watch this movie. The graphics yeah. are questionable. For sure. Do you know what? I mean, it is the yeah, time. I feel like it's now 19... it would be kind of funny to... It is. It is funny to watch yeah. it now, for sure. But it, the the set, I will tell you, the set pieces on this film, though, were incredible. Mm-hmm. I was, like, blown away. Krypton, even the Fortress of Solitude, Lex Luthor's lair, which is in the subway, kind of, under Park Avenue. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Really cool. Yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah, worth a revisit, for sure. For nice. sure. How about you, Miss Sinclair? What did you pick? So, I watched Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> From 1963. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) Quick synopsis. A rock star travels to a small Ohio town to make his farewell television performance and kiss his biggest fan before he is drafted. Yes. Oh. This is directed by George Sidney, and it stars Dick Van Dyke, Anne Margaret, and Janet Leigh. Okay, so this movie is based off of the hit Broadway musical, Bye Bye Birdie. Has anybody seen this? 
I actually haven't seen Bye Bye Birdie. I haven't seen it either, I don't think. Okay, well, <laughs> neither had I. And yeah. while I was watching this, it's one of those movies where you go, this is what this is about? Like, right. this is what this is about? What? Yeah, I had no idea the premise for this, actually. Because I had heard Bye Bye Birdie. Like, we've all heard yeah. Bye Bye Birdie. But yes. For yes. sure. This is what it is? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, this movie's uh, a huge what the fuck. But, uh, okay. I, so, basically, Conrad Birdie is the rock star, and he is supposed to actually represent Elvis and that's because Elvis was actually drafted and served time in the military so this is actually exploring that idea of this rock star who was who was drafted and originally Elvis was supposed to play Conrad Birdie in this movie but his managers were like no that would be self-parody because this is making mm. fun of Elvis as a sensation. Okay. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. And in truth, Elvis actually took his time in the army quite seriously. Yeah. Was, he was full on in the military. Tr- yep. Mm. He was. And by all accounts earned the respect of mm-hmm. the soldiers at his side. Yeah. So basically this story centers around this character named Albert who plays is played by Dick Van Dyke and he is this struggling songwriter but he's also a chemist I guess okay so he's actually a better <laughs> chemist than he is songwriter I don't know so he's struggling and Janet Lee plays his girlfriend and he is like waiting for his big break and his big break is actually supposed to be Conrad Birdie is supposed to sing one of his songs but then Conrad gets drafted So he's like, ah, now Conrad is, you know, going off to the military and he can't sing my song. And now my big, big, Mm. big break is ruined. So Dick Van Dyke and Janet Lee kind of hash this plan to have Conrad Birdie go to Ohio and kiss his biggest fan on the Ed Sullivan show and sing Mm. a song that's written by Albert, by Dick Van Dyke. Okay. The thing is, is that his biggest fan is in high school. Like, she's just turned 16. <laughs> and Conrad Birdie definitely looks like a full-grown man. So right away, right. I'm right. like, why is this man going to kiss this teenager? So like, yeah. right away, it's weird. This was her dream, and, and that was not that weird back then, as weird as that is to say. I know, but the funny thing is, is that I've been listening to a lot of music from the 50s and like a lot of doo-wop stuff and everything and a lot mm. of it centers around turning 16 yeah. and like yeah. a that was when woman they could have sex. Because... <laughs> yeah. so it's always <laughs> this like man singing about how you're 16 now sweet, and, 16. sweet 16 and yeah. that's what happens in this movie basically Anne margaret plays this character of kim she's just turned 16 Obviously, she sings about being 16, and Mm -hmm. she's kind of torn because she gets to kiss Conrad Birdie, but she also is going steady with her high school boyfriend. So she has this conflict of like, do I get to kiss this superstar or should I stay with you know, plain old boring, you know, Joe Schmo from Ohio? Okay, but surely that's her... um... 
what's it called when you oh like a pass like you get yeah. it's on your oh, list it's a pass right well, you know what her boyfriend doesn't feel that way edison at all <laughs> and he's like you're gonna kiss this guy we're going steady i gave you a pin and there's a whole song about him giving her a pin which i oh think is God. really hilarious that that meant you were going steady if you gave someone a pin wow, anyway they all go to ohio and blah, 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 things happen. And really what I thought was interesting was that with the play, I guess there's a scene where the police come and like take Conrad Birdie away for statutory rape, <laughs> which they just left out of the movie. So this whole movie, I have like my hands on my head going, what is this movie? What yeah, actually, is this? it's a complete romp. It was like they wanted to use like every single color, every single editing, star wipe. (laughs) It's just this like psychedelic romp in parts. And it's just completely bonkers. But it's actually funny too. I was laughing for the majority of it because it was so over the top and ridiculous. And it is supposed to be a parody of Elvis basically and how people would just go crazy over Elvis and faint Mm. at his pelvic thrusting and Mm -hmm. all of that. (laughs) at the end kim does decide that she just wants to stick with her boyfriend from ohio and that Mm. our idols aren't really all they appear to be when we meet them right so conrad Mm. birdie comes to ohio and he's kind of like a rex manning from empire records where it's like you meet them and you're like ah you're not actually that great like don't Mm -hmm. meet your heroes don't Mm -hmm. meet your heroes yeah the thing that i thought was really fucked up about this is that the biggest song in this is Bye Bye Birdie. And at the end, she sings Bye Bye Birdie because she's saying, I'm sticking with my man. Bye Bye Birdie because he's getting drafted. Like he's going off to war. And I'm like, that's fucking dark. Yeah. This, mo- this movie's fucking dark. Like, bye Bye like, Forever. Yeah, she's like, Bye Bye Birdie saying bye to you. But he's also going off to war. See you later. Hope you survive. Hope you survive. Bye Bye Bye. <laughs> It's so weird. Ba, ba, ba. Uh, oh wow! That's what Bye Bye Birdie is. So I didn't, I didn't know that. I watched that, and now I have. We'll seen never be it the same. And <laughs> oh, and also, you know how they do a lot of musicals live, like they do Peter Pan live, yeah, 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 Hairspray live. They were supposed to do Bye Bye Birdie live with Jennifer Lopez, and I don't know who she was supposed to play. <laughs> the 16 year old i don't know yeah. I mean, probably she, she could so yeah. i don't know but it fell through but i mean maybe one day we'll see bye bye birdie with jennifer lopez who knows <laughs> how are the song how's the music in it no one can sing Catchy. that's why it's so funny oh, yeah. too because nobody can sing in this movie <laughs> and the songs like I, I don't know it's completely bonkers so yeah bye bye birdie that's what it is if you didn't know um I did. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie to Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if your heart tells you to and you want to idolize these Canadian podcast idols, (laughs) go to. Patreon.com slash talk movie to me to become a monthly member. <laughs> I'm Helen. <laughs> oh.
I miss Sinclair, the idol, apparently. <laughs> the Canadian idol. I'm Edison. Excuse me, I'm Edison the idol. Okay, yeah, actually, Edison actually an idol. Yeah. <laughs> 